So maybe at 5, 4 or maybe 5 o'clock in the morning we were put on alert because actually the war started. In Mariupol, like, it was pretty asymmetrical war for us because our enemy had almost everything and we had nothing. As for me, it became obvious that our enemy has total superiority. It's like superiority in the numbers of personnel, superiority in numbers of armored vehicles, in all ways and means. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and this is a special episode. The MWI podcast is really our flagship podcast, but we also have several others, one of which is the Urban Warfare Project podcast hosted by John Spencer. John recently had a terrific opportunity. He got the chance to speak to Arseniy Fedosyuk, a Ukrainian non-commissioned officer who took part in the defense of the Azov steel factory in Mariupol last year. This episode is essentially a condensed version of a portion of that conversation. Arseny shares some fascinating details of the battle based on first-hand experience. He describes the numerical and equipment disadvantage of the Ukrainians, shares his observations on Russian tactics, and more. I think listeners will really appreciate hearing it, but since it is just a portion of the longer conversation, I really encourage you to go and find the Urban Warfare Project podcast. You can get it wherever you're listening to this one, and look out for the episode that will be released on Friday, July 21st. That episode will include the much longer conversation with this phenomenal guest, and the full discussion is exceptional. Before we get to the episode, as always, a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's John Spencer with Arseny Fedosyuk. Today's guest on the podcast is Sergeant Arseny Fedesuk. Thanks for joining us. So just to start off, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and how you came to be serving in the Azov in Mariupol? I joined military in 2014 when the war started. Firstly, I joined military as a volunteer. I had no previous military experience before I joined the military. Before our first battle, we had boot camp. We obtained some basic tactical skills, and some basic tactical medicine skills, and that's all. After that, we went to Ilovaisk. If you remember, it was uh, one of the uh, it was one of the biggest battles during the first first period of the war. We gained some experience actually during the battles. So, and as for me, the first year of uh, that war, the first year passed in volunteer battalions. After that, I went back to my hometown, stayed there for several months, and after that I decided to join a professional military unit. And in 2016, I signed a contract with Azov, with the National Guard of Ukraine, and started my military career. I passed five years on active duty in uh, Azov Regiment. First, three years uh, passed for me in an infantry battalion. After that, in 2019, I decided to join reconnaissance and I became a sniper. Uh, So two years from 2019 till 2021, I worked as a sniper. Three months before the full-scale invasion started, my contract ended and I resigned from the military. But the day before, before the, the big war started, I returned back to Mariupol 
because I knew that like the big war should begin. And for me it was important to be with my military unit, with my friends, with my brothers in arms. So I went back to Mariupol on the February 23rd. So as for, for me, this, uh, the big war be, uh, started in, in Mariupol. I passed through all Mariupol campaign uh, when, as you know, we get captured by Russians. Uh, so all our regiment went to captivity. And after seven months of, of uh, military prison, I was exchanged. So when did it start for you? So I know you, you said you rejoined on February 23rd. The full-scale invasion starts on February 24th, technically. Where exactly were you in Mariupol at the Azov Regiment headquarters? For that time, we, we had several bases, three actually. One in Mariupol and two others in the outlying villages. The village of Urzuf and the village uh, Yurivka. My company was located in the village called Yurivka. It's around... 40 kilometers from Mariupol to the west. So maybe at 5, 4 or maybe 5 o'clock in the morning we were put on alert because actually the war started. Uh, we heard explosions made by uh, Russian uh, rocket attack. Russians targeted Mariupol airport and uh, Mariupol air defense system. So the first thing they targeted it was a radar. And the fact that they destroyed that uh, air defense radar made our air defense absolutely useless because without a radar all the systems cannot work so uh, because of that in Mariupol uh, their airplanes fell themselves home and I think in this war we haven't seen such intense use of airplanes by Russians as we saw in Mariupol so 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning we were put on alert and we started uh, evacuating from our base we started evacuating personnel, ammunition, we started burning some sensible documentation and we started evacuating and we went to Mariupol because it wasn't safe to stay on this base. As for me, it was a surprise that they did not launch an attack on our military base. From my point of view, from, like from the military point of view, it would be very useful to destroy a base like right away from the beginning of the war. But they didn't do that, and actually, because of that, they faced a lot of problems. But luckily, they didn't uh, launch attack on our base. So we had, we had a chance to evacu evacuate from this base, so we had a plenty of time. And maybe afternoon, we were in Mariupol. We resettled to one building, then another building, so we were moving constantly. After that, our company resettled to a building uh, near the school in Mariupol and the first week we lived uh, like in that in that building so you you moved out of your base you moved into Mariupol city eventually a, a stronger building uh, and that's a week into the war what's next first week there was no combat actions in Mariupol we had combat actions on the outline in the outlying villages on the first week, we tried to repel them from the outlying villages. So, the first major battle we had in the village called Stary Krim. It's to the north. So, as you know, Russia, Russians advanced from three directions. From east, from west, and then the column that went from west separated into two columns. And they're advancing from the west and from the north. The first column 
who tried to enter the city was the column that was advancing from the north. Because on the east had all defensive lines from the anti-terrorist operation. And that was pretty good defensive lines. That was not so easy to go th through them. But as for other places, our direction, there was no defensive lines. And there was some kind of betray from, from some people from Ukrainian state system. Because the general that was uh, responsible for the defense of Mariupol, he left the city several days before the full-scale invasion. And the whole month before the full-scale invasion, he made a lot of obstacles for us to make these defensive lines on the western and northern directions. So the first time our group faced the enemy, it was the battle in Stary Krim. I think it was 28th, 28th of February, yes, if I remember it right, yes. So there advancing, there was a tank column. It was considered maybe from four to six tanks. And there was some armored vehicles to provide support for, that, for the tanks. And what kind of equipment did you have? Did you have mechanized infantry, anti-tank guns? My combat group, like we have our company, Reconnaissance Company, we had one BTR-3 with 30mm mortar. Oh, no, no, we had two BTR-3. One of them was destroyed several days after this battle. And that's all. What about like ammunition and weaponry? We had light weaponry, so AK-74, AR-15, RPG, anti-tank complex such as uh, Fagot. Fagot, yeah. Stugna? Uh, no, there was no single Stugna in Azov. Uh, javelin? No, no, we were, uh, no. Like for that time, we can't receive all these uh, like Western examples of ammunition. Uh, because, you know, this, this politics. So we had around 40 enlaws for the old defense of Mariupol. 40 enlaws for all the regiment. And our company had maybe 5 or 6 enlaws. And I think that's, yes, that's all. So you're at, uh, on February 28th in Starry Cream, there's a lot of fighting? Yes. So Russians were trying to move their 10 columns towards Mariupol. And we were uh, repelling uh, their attacks. It started like, actually, uh, at that day it started and ended as a tank fight between our tanks and their tanks. Also, we are using our BTR. It's very efficient to use the 30mm even to fight against tanks because it has a lot of power. We burned several tanks from one to three tanks because I don't remember the actual count. After that, we started to hold the defense in this village. And then at night, as long as our group, like we were... Uh, we have good night skills and we had good night equipment. So night vision goggles? Uh, night vision, uh, not Google, but PVS-14, okay. uh, monocular. And uh, thermal sights. Great. For example, my combat group consisted of 12 people and 8 of them had thermal sights. It's pretty good quantity for, for, for such a group. The next month for us passed like in night operations. We worked predominantly at night. But a lot of Mariupol was being bombed at this point, right? In March, a lot of the bombing is starting? They started bombing Mariupol like from the very first days of, of the invasion. 
and uh, like massive uh, artillery shellings that was pretty casual story for all this uh, battle for, of, of Mariupol. After maybe third week, they started their extensive use of uh, airplanes. Airplanes uh, launched uh, rocket attacks and they used unguided aerial bombs, FAP 250, FAP 500. This number it means like how uh, how much does this bomb weigh in kilograms? Yeah. So you, you can imagine just how explosion could be big. Yeah. So ah also we were aimed like to work at night, but as long as in, in Mariupol there was uh, like pretty difficult situation and human resources were scarce, we started uh, like to work at night at the day like around the clock. And I want to say about Russian tactics in Mariupol. They were using like both mobilized groups and professional militaries. And they were using like such a style to assault you in several waves. During the first wave, they were using predominantly mobilized. And their aim was to rupture like our defensive lines and our position. After that, after revealing our positions, our firing points, they launched artillery shellings on that points to destroy them. And after that, they sent professional uh, militaries, and they started over and over. Yes. In Mariupol, like, it was pretty asymmetrical war for us, because our enemy had almost everything, and we had nothing, and our nothing was very limited, like, <laughs> in, in the size. I was curious that, I mean, I know that the bombing is non-stop, basically from February 24th on. How did you and your fellow soldiers stay safe during the bombings? I don't really know. Was there basements and buildings that you were staying in that you... We lived for that time during the, all these uh, operations on Left Bank. We lived at the Azov Steel, at oh, the, so the basement. When did you move into the Azov Steel factory? We moved there at the end of the first week. Wow. So you used it as a base of operations from beginning of March, really? Yes, it was like our base. Had you been in the steel factory before the war? No, no. Who else was there? Was this Were civilians already there or not yet? No, a lot of civilians were there for the time. A lot of civilians were using the shelters, their basement like shelters. But I saw civilians like only several times at the Azov Steel. Did they have like a different area where they were staying than the yes. military? Uh, yes, they had separate basements. There were some mixed basements where like both the military and civilians lived. Because a lot of civilians were like relatives of, of the military. Yeah, their families, right? Yes. Ah, and it's also I have to mention that it was during all the battle of Mariupol, it was very hard to fight because there were a lot of civilians. And like before each operation, we had firstly to isolate the territory from the civilians. We had to guide them to the shelters. We had to tell them because people got insane some people got absolutely fearless no people got used to that shellings to right. to the shootings yeah. and people got fearless we had constantly to guide them to the shelters and to watch them to stay in the shelters so about this operation that was battle with garu the main intelligence directorate the special forces unit from main intelligence directorate so did you always know who you were facing? Because I know you talked about DPR and the professional soldiers, but there was also the Chechens and a lot of other forces attacking in Mariupol. Did you usually know who you were fighting? You can find out whom you're fighting from the appearance of your enemy. So if your enemy 
had poor ammunition, poor equipment, you can mention that it's mobilized. And if you face like a professional fighter with a good combat vest, with a helmet, with googles, with some technical equipment, then you can think that it's somebody professional. But during that fight, we didn't know that it was like Garou. Yeah. We realized it maybe the, the next day. So how it was? We were put on alert uh, maybe at 10 a.m. in the morning. And we were told that there is armored vehicles column that used gaps in our defensive lines will infiltrate deep into the city, into our defense. And there was a column that consisted of nine armored vehicles. It was several Typhoon vehicles, then several BTR-82. Okay. So that was, I think that was a, a whole company. As we were told after that, their aim was to infiltrate into the Azov Steel factory and neutralize our common stuff. They were very good e equipped, very good. They had like night visions, thermal scopes, anti-drone rifles. Yeah, how did you keep Azov Steel safe? As in like, how many forces did you have to use to secure the steel factory to be a base for you? Was it a lot of troops? When? We're about at the end of March now. Like, at the end of March, we did not use people to secure Rays of Steel. We used people to secure our defensive lines all over the city. Okay. Because the defensive line was pretty uh, long. The amount of people was limited. So we can't allow ourselves like to use people to secure this, this territory. There was several checkpoints. Mm -hmm. And there was like people on the, on the checkpoints, and yeah. uh, and that's all. But you had a defensive line outside the city. Yes. Uh, also, we had positions on this hill. That's a hill. And that's a height. It's called Cinder Mound. Yes, it's made of cinder. And you had forces up top there just because they could see across the factory. We were observing like the coastline. Got it. Because I don't remember when it was. Maybe it was the mid-April or the end of April. They were trying to assault us by sea using the BTR-82. They can swim, the, the type of BTR. And they went from this coast right here, swimming by the sea on that BTR. And they are trying to assault this syndrome out. Wow. But all these intentions were like repelled. So what's next? After several days, we moved to the right bank to help our troops on the, on the right, right bank of Mariupol. I don't remember some like prominent operations. Right. This was like a casual work. So every night we went to s some positions and trying to kill them at night. Well, almost every night we had some good results, almost every night. But as for that time, as for me, it became obvious that our enemy has total superiority. It's like superiority in the numbers, of personal superiority in numbers of armored vehicles in all ways and means. And for that time, I think that was a matter of self-defense. Was there a point where you realized that you were surrounded and there would be no... Yes, maybe at the end of the march, like all major roads were blocked yep. by Russians. Did the commanders talk to you guys about where they said, okay, we're surrounded, but we're going to fight till the end? Yes. And also we were told constantly that some help like is on the way we need to 
hold like a week, 10 days, 5 days. They told us it all, all the time. But I did not believe that because I realized that the nearest Ukrainian positions from Mariupol was about 100 kilometers. Now, in about mid-April, I know that the Ukrainian military did send helicopter resupply into Azovstal, right? Yes. They sent stingers, javelins. Not javelins. No javelins? No, no, no javelins. And it was like a very bad surprise for us because I thought, what's the problem? What's the problem for you to send javelins? But they did not send javelins, they sent matadors. But as you know, matadors are not such efficient as, as javelins. I don't know why, maybe they did not want to waste javelins for this battle, because it was obvious how this battle will end. So they released the videos later of the helicopters flying into Azovstal and offloading a couple of special forces and then putting some of the wounded on the helicopters to take them out. Did you see any of that or you, were you busy fighting? I saw people that came to Mariupol as reinforcement on yeah. helicopters. Yeah. Several of my friends, several of my friends came here to Mariupol on the helicopters. And mostly they were used to hold the defense on the right bank. Because that was the hottest like, point of the time in Mariupol. So yes, I talked to a lot of them. And the guys that came to Mariupol on helicopters, that was, wasn't like a special forces. No. No, no, this was like just simple guys. Volunteers though, right? That knew they were flying in to something that they might not come out count of? Yes, they knew that it was a one-way ticket. They were conscious of that fact. The news said that one of the things sent in was a Starlink. Yes, they helped us a lot. Yeah. Because in any war, like, communication is, like, on the top of the needs. So you could tell a difference before the Starlink came in and after? What was the difference? It became easily to communicate. It became easily to coordinate. Because every squad, every team had a map. It was called Krupova. It's a Ukrainian invention from the past days of anti-terroristic operation. And we are using that map. Like, we are... It's a digital map or a physical map? Yeah, it's a digital. It's on a digital cell, map. On your cell phone? On, on a cell phone, on a tablet. Okay. And what is it called? Krupova. And on this map, you see all your positions, enemies' positions. Oh, so like when I was in Kiev, I studied something like that called Delta. That's pretty the same story. Same yes. Okay. Same thing. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, we had uh, two such systems uh, like Krupova and uh, Combat. Okay. Uh, the combat map is refreshing like in the real time. If you have internet connection, you can refresh it. And you can see like the newest uh, situation yeah. on, on the front line. And it's very important to know how defensive line lies. Yeah. So these maps, these situational awareness maps were different before Starlink came in and after they were a lot better. Before Starlink came, it was very hard to refresh them. Okay. You had to go to the command post and to refresh it manually. So all the resupplies have stopped, you said, at the beginning of April, no more helicopters. There was like four successful helicopter operations. Yep. Didn't some of those Ukrainian helicopters get shot down? I know one of the missions... Two, Two helicopters yeah. were shut down, okay. yes. Okay. And did you know about that and, and what did that... We knew about that because I used to read a lot the Telegram channels, our enemies' Telegram channels. Oh, so you're reading, in the battle, you're reading the enemy's telegram channels? Yes, of course, all of us read. Was there anybody in the command post whose job it was to, like, search? 
yes, they uh, search through Telegram channels, uh, through uh, social media. They did really great work. They started that work before the full-scale invasion during the anti-terroristic operation. They even pretended like they were chatting with uh, our enemy, pretending like to be a woman. And uh, while chatting, they were receiving some sensible information where they allocated their common posts. So it's social engineering uh, yeah. skills. And that's like in the Azov command post, there's like people who's yeah. responsible for doing that? Yes, yes. There was such such people. Okay, so beginning of April. For the time on the Red Bank, we had like a double encirclement. There was one big encirclement around the city and there was a smaller encirclement around the Red Bank. So we had a free territory in the middle of the right bank. All other territory... Cut off from the factory. Yes, we were separated from our main forces on Azov Steel and left bank. So we had to move through enemy's positions to get to our forces on Azov Steel. When did you do that? It was 15th of April. So that was like, if you remember the uh, Save Private Ryan? Yeah. You remember that scene at the beginning, the uh, Amaha Beach? Yeah. Something like that. That was the pretty the same story because the intensity of artillery shelling and firing was pretty the same. So we had such a plan. We had to move in two columns. One column went on foot and other column on vehicles. Vehicles carried injured fighters because for that time it was impossible to carry injured fighters to the Azov Steel directly. And they were uh, located on the field hospitals on the right bank. But those field hospitals were horrible. That was like those pictures from the First World War. Every day, several people were dying because of blood loss, inflammations, and so on. So almost all the vehicles were loaded with injured fighters, with ammunition, with weapons, and other column went on foot. The size of the column that went on foot was pretty big. It was around 400 people. Our group was in the vanguard of that column. As long as we had reconnaissance, we had night visions, thermal scopes. Our aim was to neutralize enemy on our way to the Azov Steel. Because here in the area of the railway station, in these residential areas, that was all the enemy's defensive lines. And they had several defensive lines here. We started creating our columns on this road, and this column was noticed by our enemy because as I, as I told before they every night they're, they're using like drones yep. to make surveillance after that they started artillery firing i tried to persuade myself that it's like targeted not on our column i thought that they they're targeting like other other targets but obviously they were targeting us so despite that massive artillery shelling we didn't stop, because for us it was a question of survival. Yeah. We can't stop. We approached the first positions of our enemy. Using uh, like our equipment, we neutralized all of them. Uh, after that, Russians started artillery firing on all this area. And uh, actually, they were destroying their own positions. And they were killing their own people on their positions. But they didn't care about that. Within the two hours, we approached the river of Kalmius. And here is... The old boat station. Boat station? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. So we concentrated in these buildings. How many, how many people? All foot columns, so okay. 400 people. 
I'm talking about food column only because I was a part of that column. So we were at the beginning of that column, our group. We concentrated in that building. We found some boats on that station. And using that boats, we crossed the river. But uh, my group, we decided not to wait for the boats. And we crossed the river by ourselves. We just swimmed through, through the river. So 400 people crossed from the old boat station. Yes. Crossed the river trying to get to the factory. Yes. And you swam. Uh, we swim, yes. Wow. So we crossed the river. And then we approached like the factory. The vehicle column had the worst situation. Because they had to concentrate in this area and this area was like it was easy like to make large artillery shellings here they were using like mortars grad systems artillery system everything all ways and means to destroy us Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.